Hello and welcome to Health to Wealth, a series brought to you by Accor. I'm Annie Hood. This is the podcast that shows you how well-being touches every part of your life. The three dimensions of wellness are environmental wellness, societal wellness and individual wellness are in fact one single dimension. They are all completely interconnected, integrated, interdependent with each other. Thierry Mallory is a gifted economist, entrepreneur and original thinker. He's worked for several investment banks, for the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, in the Office of France's Prime Minister and at the World Economic Forum. He launched the Global Risk Network there, where he gathered insight and held events for top policy makers, CEOs and academics. Thierry then co-founded the Monthly Barometer. It's a newsletter and a community network for high-level decision makers. He examines macro issues and evaluates risk. He's also created the Summit of Minds. That's an event that brings big thinkers and practitioners together to explore topical global issues in workshops and thought leader discussions. And yes, I did say workshop, not workshop. What do I mean by that? You'll find out very soon. Thierry has written three significant books in recent years. The Great Reset, The Great Narrative, both of those with Klaus Schwab, and with his wife Marianne, 10 Good Reasons to Go for a Walk. Thierry, tell me, why does going for a walk mean that you're more likely to make good decisions? It's now incontrovertible evidence corroborated by many, many studies conducted in um, psychology, in uh, neuroscience, in the science of physiology, in medicine, the theory of decision-making. And uh, there is a tremendous amount of research showing that walking leads to more creativity, to better thinking, to clearer thinking, and therefore, ultimately, to better decisions. I say corroborating because there's never been a controlled experiment showing this. So from a hard science point of view, it's very hard to do. And maybe one day we'll do it. But for the moment, a lot of um, studies with anecdotal evidence and showing the correlation between being outside, walking, and making better decisions. Your most recent book is called The Great Narrative, and it's about the fact that stories have a unique power to help you, me, and everyone else on the planet understand what's going on. What is the story of well-being as you see it? The narrative about um, well-being at the moment is very much centered about integrative well-being. And uh, you hear a lot about integrative medicine, about you know, looking at it from a holistic perspective. But very often, this holistic perspective is related to the individual. It's me, me, me. You know, and I'm going to do everything that is important to me as a person, selfishly. Well, in reality, uh, if you want to properly enjoy well-being in a non-exclusive fashion, it has to permeate holistically all the spheres in which we operate as human beings, which is society, and our planet. Now, of course, there'll always be, there will always be a, a strong wellness uh, component, wellness industry, because um, the wealthy people can afford to go to fancy places and uh, be pampered and uh, enjoy a spa or whatever is good for you. Uh, but it's a very, very tiny segment of the entire population, unless we favor the societal well-being of everybody. And to your point, Thierry, well-being can often be seen as elitist, a commodity more than a culture. 
What needs to change in that well-being narrative to see that culture shift happening and potentially happening more quickly? Well, it can be seen as a commodity, but not in the uh, a commodity in the economic sense of the word. It is commoditized in a certain sense by some companies and people who give, in my opinion, in my very personal opinion, a very bad name to well-being. By contrast, if you want to change the narrative about well-being and if you want to make it a truly holistic notion, you need to integrate the three superposed dimensions of well-being, which is individual well-being, of course, ultimately, as individuals, this is what matters to us. But I would argue that you cannot be individually well if you live in a society that is profoundly unwell and in an environment that is equally unwell due to biodiversity loss, to, due to pollution, due to climate change, due to catastrophe of all sorts. It's impossible. You know, you could still argue that you're going to live in your own little bubble, but how, how far will your wellness take you if you do this in a bubble? We are societal animals. We live in society, so we cannot dissociate ourselves from the well-beings of, of the planet and the societal well-being of the societies in which we live and operate. Let's reflect on some of the macro issues that Thierry has been discussing. As you've heard, for Thierry, there is no personal well-being without the well-being of society and the planet. And that's a perspective you'll hear echoed in the coming weeks in another episode of Health to Wealth with Ollie Patrick. Ollie is a clinical physiologist who works with corporates, hospitality and individuals to deliver wellness programs. Here's Ollie's take on the relationships between the consumer market and those macro issues that Thierry has just been discussing. Two markets have arisen, the consumer market and the product market. So people are asking, how do I look after myself? And, and that has never been more answered, but they're answering it through product. And we've seen the rise of, a, of the well-being product marketplace, but probably an absence of the well-being service marketplace. The broader picture, how do states, how do businesses, how do populations influence well-being is, is a critical debate. You know, we have an imbalance where you've got a government guideline giving generalized recommendations to health, and then the individual being sold hundreds of different interventions on a daily basis that don't match up to those guidelines. To me, macro is the biggest opportunity of well-being, because if I improve the well-being of a population, I decrease their health costs unequivocally. I improve their performance unequivocally, and I increase my index of happiness unequivocally. So if I, if I am responsible for a broader well-being protocol, then I have to take a step back and say, this is one of those few win-wins. I make the individual happier and healthier, but I also return a significant return on investment across those domains of economics, of output and GDP, and also markers of happiness. So it's one of those few areas where every pound invested can, can go in so many different ways. So I, I love a macro. As Ollie says, it's so important to look at both the macro and the micro when considering the importance of well-being. Thierry Malloway defines this with three key anchors, individual well-being, societal well-being and the well-being of the planet. As you'll hear, for Thierry, there are still gaps in understanding when it comes to well-being and business performance. Well, certainly there are gaps, absolutely. And uh, it's striking to observe the, the fundamental disconnect between the discourse about well-being or the narrative about well-being in some companies that promote well-being in a very truncated manner and the reality of well-being on the ground. 
if a company promotes the virtues of well-being by giving you a yoga mat and 10 minutes of meditation and a ping-pong table and some food at lunchtime, which is organic, and imposes upon you totally unrealistic KPIs, well, you know, where is well-being? And I know, you know, we all know thousands of examples of that. And uh, you're talking about the Summit of Minds earlier. We, we have a session almost every year, the Summit of Minds, in which we address this issue because some very prominent companies that sing the praise of well-being and claim to be adept at implementing workplace wellness programs operate in such a way that uh, well-being <laughs> becomes an illusion because uh, the environment, the working environment can be very, very toxic. Similarly, something which, which has been you know, discussed uh, at length is why is it that um, the companies that perform at the highest level, like investment banks, like strategy boutiques or companies like uh, law firms, impose these um, incredible programs, professional programs during which you sleep. Uh, it's like being in the army. It's like being in the special forces. If you haven't proven that um, you can sleep towards the night over a week or, or so, you're not going to make it. So it's something which is profoundly unwell, but it's not the point. The function of this program is to test your stamina. It's not to promote well-being. So the point is, of course, we all know that well-being is important. Uh, but there are many, many industries in which there is this fundamental disconnect between the discourse about well-being and the way in which uh, you know, well-being fundamental principles are being applied. And we know why. These businesses are highly performing and uh, well-being may be important in the discourse, but it's a false narrative. What difference do you think a more prevalent well-being narrative would make to this? That well-being being talked about more, being a subject that is higher on the list of big city agendas, even government agendas? Well-being, it's a catchword, and nobody truly knows how to define well-being. Of course, there are some definitions which we know and uh, which we find on the website of the Global Wellness Institute and uh, in many different other places. Wellness, okay, wellness is the path conducive to well-being, the wellness industry uh, in itself. We said the wellness industry, but is it an industry? No, you know, you don't have um, in an investment bank a wellness department. It's not an industry per se. It's not an asset class. You don't have a a wellness asset class. And in fact, many definitions that try to capture what wellness is all about fail of capturing um, the incredibly broad extent or, or categories in which wellness can be uh, included. Uh, for example, if I go to the theater or to a movie, isn't it wellness? Isn't it something which amounts to wellness experience if it pleases me? Yes, it is. And yet it's not being categorized as a wellness activity. If you go to a spa for the wrong reason, because you're obsessed about your, you know, what you think is wrong with your body or you want to lose weight, or it may be a miserable experience. And yes, it will be considered as wellness. So I think it's very hard to capture what wellness is truly all about. It's not an asset class. It's not a, an economic activity, which is neatly delineated. It's a very broad notion which people find very hard to capture. So at the moment, because of the uh, prevalence of the wellness narrative in the media, very often what you describe as wellness is um, what you read about the, you know, the, the big celebrities uh, espousing the virtues of wellness, whatever it may be. But um, it can also boil down to very simple things, which are never captured in the data because some of them are not marketable. Well, going for a walk, my main activity, I work by walking. Millions of people walk around the world 
it's a thriving industry, very limited, but very limited in terms of economic activity, in terms of you know how much it represents in terms of GDP. But it's a, now you have trades all over the world, particularly in the rich world. You know, in the US, in Europe, you have zillions of kilometers of trail. Many people walk, uh, but you cannot capture the economic value of a walk. So it's not being properly counted as wellness. And yet, it's a very fundamental part of the wellness world. So why do we count meditation, which can be measured you know, through apps, and, uh, and why don't we count walking? Unless you walk on this uh, machine in a, in a gym. Do you think the ambiguity of the word wellness or well-being is its downfall? No, I don't think so, because, because again, it's a notion that permeates so many different things. And everybody talks about wellness. And the more we progress in terms of wealth and in terms of you know, income and uh, GDP growth, the more obsessed we become about wellness. I'm just saying that there are many, many parts of the wellness industry that one could argue are toxic because they make us unwell or we do them for the wrong reasons. You know, all this obsession about the bodies for, for men, for, for women. Uh, you know, I was posting an article about two weeks ago um, about this new um, disease that afflicts so many young men who want to be more muscular and uh, eat uh, badly because they want to build muscle mass, etc., and become totally obsessed. And uh, it's now a mental condition, and uh, it makes you profoundly unwell mentally. And yet, in the data, in the figures that capture the extent of the wellness industry, they will be considered as consumers of wellness, even though it may be for a very bad reason. So I'm just saying that there is you know, this great ambiguity. I don't think it's going to, to lead to the downfall of, of wellness um, at all, because again, you know, wh- what is wellness? It can be expressed in so many different forms. It is an aspiration, first of all. And then we try to translate this fundamental aspiration that lies uh, within every one of us in data, in hard numbers. So downfall, I don't think so. What, what strikes me, though, is that I can see more and more very serious people looking at wellness from a very different angle and uh, putting forward this argument that you just formulated. I, could, I saw two weeks ago that the Aspen Institute was having a session called, Is Wellness Making You Unwell? Here we are. Uh, that's exactly the argument I was uh, putting forward a, a, a minute ago. You know, some parts of the wellness industry are detrimental to our mental well-being. We, we know that. And there are some immense domains of wellness activities that are not being integrated within, within the, the wellness space or industry because, because they have so little economic value. You know, walking, um, looking at the stars. The joy in the simple things, the things that cost no money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's fascinating what you say, because one of the challenges we're addressing through the Health to Wealth podcast is exactly what we're talking about here, the different perspectives of wellness and well-being, what it means to people, how much more relevant well-being has become. And The five key areas that you, or lenses, if I can say that, that you look through from economy, environment, technology, society, and geopolitical, you weave well-being through all of those aspects whenever Mm -hmm. you consider them. Mm -hmm. I've I've read your, your work for many years now, and you're particularly gifted 
at that and looking towards what the future holds. Well, you're very kind, very generous in your comments. Manuel Moniz is an academic and former State Secretary for Global Spain. And in another episode of this series, he talks about the science of anticipation. Mm -hmm. And for him, having the ability to anticipate what's going to happen next with AI, with data, and the impact that may have on inequality is essential. What do you make of that? And what would be your take on it? Trying to anticipate what is going to affect an economy, a country, an industry, a, a business, uh, an activity, an institution, or whatever, is my mind business, is what I do on a daily basis. And it's very hard to do. It's very dangerous to do because, uh, you know, as we know, forecasting is impossible. You cannot predict the future. However, you can prepare for it. You can prepare for it by looking at the world through scenario analysis, for example, trying to figure out what's likely to happen and envisage the situation through different prisms and angles. And uh, I, you know, I've had many conversations with Manuel uh, on this. Um, so if it relates to wellness, you know, I'm convinced for many different reasons, the main one being that the, uh, we're getting richer, you know, the world is getting richer, despite all the catastrophes we hear about, the world as a whole, the global economy is expanding and um, barring a recession next year, which may last for a few months, we are getting richer very fast. And the richer we get, the greater the proclivity to pay attention to what matters to us instead of subsistence, um, like in the past. So we pay more attention to the way in which we live, to the way in which we relate to others. And uh, of course, wellness become well-being becomes a, a primary consideration, which we've been seeing very well over the past few, few decades. And uh, when you do that, you start paying attention to the components of what makes you well, physically well, mentally well, cognitively well. So I think to respond to your extremely broad question as distinctly as possible, I think that wellness is going to expand, but it will expand in a very different fashion compared to what we've seen over the past um, few years. I think going back to the question to ask me at the beginning of our conversation uh, regarding you know commodity wellness as a commodity, I think that's it. Um, we're not going to consume uh, wellness as if it were a bar of chocolate or a drink of some sort or whatever. We are going to integrate wellness much more into these different concentric circles I was mentioning before, which is the importance of um, societal wellness and the importance of um, the environmental wellness. You know when the world becomes unlivable because of climate change, because of um, environmental degradation, because of biodiversity loss, um, would start really paying attention to what matters, which is our environment. And all this would be done through a prism, which is not necessarily driven by market activity and uh, market transactions. I think more and more people realize that uh, you can enjoy the benefits of wellness in a very simple fashion. Again, something which is not captured by by the data, um, you know, here in Chamonix, ski touring has gone up, hard to tell, but probably 1,000% over the past two years. It's an activity that makes you profoundly well. You are nature, it's silent, you're on your skis, you meditate, you think, you are awed by the beauty of the landscape. How is this being captured by the wellness industry? Not very much, to my knowledge, because you can do this on your own. And uh, in Chamonix, you have fantastic spas, which I enjoy very much. You have all these beautiful, fancy places, which are great. But again, they're not, they do not preclude you to enjoy well-being 
through very different means, which are not marketable and which are not being captured by the data. Thierry's assertion that some of the most important aspects of well-being can't be measured is reflected right throughout this series of Health to Wealth. In the coming weeks, you'll hear from elite performance coach Harry Jameson. Harry has worked with some of the highest flyers in the world. Let's hear Harry's thoughts about well-being. I can testify to having worked with, on paper, some of the highest achieving, potentially most affluent people on the planet. The one thing that triggers that group of individuals is very much the concept that the one thing that you can't buy is your health. And our health is so multifaceted. We're nothing without community, without love, without relationships. Really, the things that you can optimise your well-being via are free. You do not have to go to an expensive, high-end fitness facility to access running or stretching or breathing or sleeping. Recovery is not doing nothing. It is mindfulness. It's cooking with your family. It's walking across Hampstead Heath with my little girl on my shoulders and with the sun in my face. It's an amazing, restorative, beautiful experience and is incredibly important and undervalued. You'll hear more from Harry, who works with Ollie Patrick to help businesses and individuals optimise wellbeing and performance later in the Health to Wealth series. Hearing Harry and Thierry discuss the importance of the simple things that help us all access wellbeing is inspiring. And as you'll hear, what Thierry has been talking about is a societal reckoning, where the halo of economic growth is accelerating our minds towards the value in those simple things. Yeah, it's just going back to the roots of something which is very, very simple. And uh, it was exemplified by Thoreau, Thoreau in uh, the, the author, the American naturalist in the um, late 19th century. I think rediscovering nature, rediscovering the importance of nature is something which is very, very fundamental. I, I can see it developing very forcefully in the coming years because nature is absolutely fundamental to us and it's something that hasn't been understood properly before COVID. And now, uh, due to the pandemic and due to the incredible devastation caused by climate change, we understand the extent to which nature is fundamental to us and to our economic activity. You know, it's something which is being measured. We, um, you know, there is a lot of research at the moment in economics showing that uh, proving you know, the obvious, uh, without nature, we're doomed. And uh, nature probably contributes between half, third and half of our economic activity. And uh, you have multiple interesting studies showing the extent to which nature is absolutely fundamental and uh, undervalued. You know, if you didn't have bees and if something had to be pollinized through human activity, how much would it cost? That's how you value nature. That's how you understand the value of nature. We take it for granted, and yet it delivers value. And I think this is where well-being is going to go in the foreseeable future. And on that note, Thierry, how will the scales reset themselves between GDP growth or focus on GDP growth and addressing climate and inequalities? How will that happen? Well, GDP growth, you know, there are many, many arguments around GDP growth. GDP growth is a, is a bad indicator. That's the indicator that we use all the time. It's easiest to, to use, and yet it's a bad indicator because you have many activities that contribute to GDP growth, which are very bad for us and very detrimental to well-being. You know, if you pollute a lot, 
you generate GDP growth. If you have uh, 10 prisons instead of one, you generate much more GDP growth at the uh, local level. So all this is now perfectly understood. And we know that we have, we ought to find an alternative. There are many proposals um, that have been floated over the past 10, 15 years. And uh, maybe we'll, we, we'll be able to move away from GDP growth to something which takes much more into account what truly matters to us and gets rid of all these um, so-called negative externalities, you know, pollution, social devastation, etc. very often produce GDP growth. And uh, of course, it's, um, it's bad. It's economic growth, but it's social subtraction of value. So you don't provide social welfare, even though you have GDP growth. So this is going to change because we're more aware of the uh, models that um, are better at integrating these different dimensions. And of course, the example that comes to mind is the Nordic countries, you know, always put forward in terms of best practices. So nobody's saying that the Nordic countries are the best among the best, but why is it that they come first always in the um, Global Happiness Report, in all the uh, different surveys and uh, studies that try to measure the way in which you can mix in a, in a better fashion efficiency and equity? You have some countries which are very efficient but very bad at delivering equity. You have some countries which are incredibly equitable, but very bad at generating efficiency. And you have, in between, countries that excel at both, like the Nordic countries. So maybe we'll come back to that. And looking at Denmark, Sweden, Finland, etc., makes us realize that the three dimensions of wellness I was uh, talking about earlier, environmental wellness, societal wellness, and individual wellness, are in fact one single dimension. They are all completely interconnected, integrated, interdependent with each other. What would you tell certain world leaders that are not in the countries that you've just mentioned? How would you advise them to best leverage well-being to their advantage? I would just observe, first of all, there is an interesting correlation between women leadership and well-being. If you look at um, countries that excel at uh, well-being, you know, measured through different indicators, they are very often led by women. So, you know, Nordic countries, we know, New Zealand, the first that put forward a well-being budget, as we know. So, you know, we have to be very careful uh, when venturing into these uh, unknown territories. The academic literature is very inconclusive. But what I observe for certain is that countries led by women seem to be more apt at moving forward with well-being policies. It's back to what we, we, we discussed uh, at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, you know, diversity is absolutely key. You need women uh, in boards. You need women in government. You need, uh, you know, it's a, it's a no-brainer. It's not even open to discussion. It's so obvious. And of course, you need women to grow. The more women access to higher education and uh, to, to jobs, the better the economic growth of any given country around the world. I'm a little guilty of talking about a positive shift from money to people and planet in a way that sometimes has more hope than evidence. What do you see right now that suggests my hope is not without merit? Yeah, I, I find it very hard to respond because at the moment um, there is so much unwellness in the world. We are living through a very anxious period in history. This climate of um, Deglobalization, of fracturing, of um, fault lines that are expanding, 
is almost certain to expand in the coming years. So it's not an easy situation to be in at the moment. You know, many people would argue, and rightfully so, if you look at the data, that we live in fabulous times. And uh, if we had to choose a period in history in which we would like to live today, it's probably the best one in terms of you know, all sorts of indicators that measure our well-being uh, in terms of uh, lifespan, in terms of uh, diseases, in terms of this and that. And yet there is this tremendous anxiety that engulfs so many of us. Climate anxiety for so many young people around the world, as we know. Anxiety regarding the future of the geopolitical order. But you know, as an economist, I would argue that when everything goes badly, wellness becomes a very scarce resource and uh, acquires more value. There is a scarcity element in, in wellness today, which is going to compel us to pay more attention to wellness. But I hope it will do so in a way that is not uh, self-centered, you know, as it can be on so many fronts. Uh, you know, wellness is not uh, going to a spa or to being pampered. It's important, but uh, let's focus on what truly matters for wellness, which is uh, you know, financial wellness, because the world is becoming so unequal that wellness becomes an impossible aspiration for people who don't make a decent living. Societal wellness, there are so many societies in which wellness is being trumpeted as a great virtue, but uh, these societies are not really well. And at the global level, at the planetary level, the wellness of our mother Earth. You know, how can we possibly imagine that we will live well if um, we don't um, address climate change, if we don't address uh, biodiversity, if we, if we don't address deforestation and the like, etc., etc. So you know, I'm conscious about the difficulties we face ahead of us, but I also think that these difficulties will prompt us to pay more attention to the fundamental elements of well-being that truly matter to us. I want to build on what Thierry's just been talking about there, particularly with regard to financial and societal well-being. Two themes that run throughout this series of Health to Wealth are equity and equality, and that's exemplified by Ali Burns. Ali is the CEO of Village Capital. That's a global venture capital firm that finds, trains and invests in entrepreneurs who are solving real-world problems. It prioritises businesses that are set up by people from diverse backgrounds who are traditionally overlooked in this area. You'll hear why that's important and how Village Capital has taken inspiration from the microfinance model to enable peer-selected investment amongst entrepreneurs in the coming weeks. Let's hear Ali's thoughts on why it's important to take a macro approach to well-being. I think it's really important for us to look at health and well-being from a macro perspective to understand how health and well-being impacts all aspects of our lives, our society, our businesses. We also think about the world with an intersectional lens. There's no one problem that we're trying to solve that doesn't really have an impact on the other. And the same is true for well-being. So even though one of the sectors we look at is health and thinking about well-being, we also think about well-being across multiple sectors, whether it's financial health, whether it's sustainability of the planet, or the way that people get access to work and skills. I think that the message of combining social impact and well-being is so important. If we're not thinking about how to build a better world with well-being in mind, we could burn ourselves out. 
And it's really important for us to stay energized, enthusiastic, and passionate about this work. It's heartening to know that there are people like Ali who fully embrace well-being as Thierry defines it, in that she champions equity and equality in investment in a sustainable way. From Thierry's perspective, Ali's approach epitomizes one that we all need to share when it comes to taking responsibility for the future of our planet. All of us, of course. And uh, you know, I think uh, CEOs, policymakers, decision makers have a very special role to play because they are power to enact decisions, to do things. So they should be all leading by example, naturally. You know, the more power you have, the more responsible you become in terms of exercising it in a way that is responsible and conducive to more societal, planetary well-being and uh, promoting wellness at the you know, individual level, at the level of the company. Again, back to financial wellness, you know, how can you trumpet the virtues of wellness if you don't pay your employees a wage which is decent enough so that these people can lead a normal life? I'm based in Chamonix. And I can see there are many companies in Germany in which um, boutiques like mine of different sorts succeed in attracting very high flyers from investment banking, from uh, law firms, etc., who've had enough and agree to cut the salary by 70 80% for the exceptional quality of living that you have in Germany or because they are passionate skiers or paragliders or uh, mountaineers or whatever. But I'm incapable of telling you whether it's an epiphenomen, whether it's something which is very, very, very small, or whether it's a trend that is going to be sustained over the years. I don't know. I don't know. What I know is that in my company, in, in the Monthly Barometer, I have some colleagues who left a very highly paid profession in Paris or London to join the business because they value the quality of life and the job and the work, but above the rest. So I have a feeling that this is a trend that is going to gain traction, but um, you know, it needs to be corroborated by, by the data. And uh, I think it's too early to tell whether it will endure. Thierry, thank you so much. That was incredibly insightful, as I knew it would be. Thank you for having me. It was a privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Health to Wealth, a series created by Accor. Next time, you'll hear from Julian Ranger on how to use your personal data to optimize your well-being without compromising on security. Please rate, review and follow Health to Wealth. You can find out more at healthtowealthbyaccor.com. Oh, oh.